0: 2 years ago or actually a few weeks or a few months ago a friend of mine sent me a text message with a link to a YouTube video. And in the video it was a video of this young, healthy, shirtless, bearded hipster guy in a high school gym. And he's this shirtless dude is balancing on a stack of dumbbells and I'm like watching this video it's like a minute long and he climbs up there and he does a handstand and jumps off and I watch this video I'm like okay that's interesting. And that's kind of impressive, but I'm like, what is this? And why would you send this to me? And so I texted my friend back. I was like, what, why? Why would you like send this to my phone? I'm like, I don't care anything about this. And he goes, yeah, but that old guy can really shoot free throws, can he? (laughs) And I was like, what are you talking about? And I watched the video again. And this old guy, you see him back there. It's the senior adult guy. He's kind of hunched back over. He can hardly move but he was just quietly doing his thing. No camera in front of him. He's fully dressed, not being flashy, but the dude was just draining free throws. (laughs) He didn't miss in the entire video. I mean like full Steve Nash style, like just sinking them. And I didn't see it at first, why? Because my eyes were focused, my attention was fixed on the hipster who was vying for attention and vying for Instagram likes. My attention was on the foreground when what was most impressive and most meaningful, really, is what was happening in the background. And when I, that video or that, that just dumb YouTube video, that is a metaphor for the culture that we live in today. Because we live in a culture that is so impressed with flashiness and attractiveness and influence and prestige and youth. Man, we care so much about appearances, don't we? I mean, that we we care so much about appearances and swagger and all of that sort of stuff that we often lose sight of what is truly meaningful and what is most impressive. And this is why our culture can feel so shallow at times. I mean, the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, social media, politics, it just feels so shallow sometimes, doesn't it? Where's the meaning in it all? And I think churches, and I think Christians, if we're not careful, we can be no different. I mean, we celebrate appearances and size and influence just like everybody else if we're not careful. And we've got churches that have built their whole brand on being flashy and being loud and being, and not that those things are wrong, but when the focus of the church becomes entertainment, we've become just as shallow as the world. And one of the great themes of the Bible is that God doesn't look at the outward things that we pay attention to. But that God looks at the heart. First Samuel 16, 7. It says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this morning we are beginning a seven week study on the letters to the seven churches from the book of Revelation. And in these letters, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus himself addresses seven separate and specific churches in Asia Minor in the first century, which is modern-day Turkey. And these are all churches that started well. These are churches that started with a passion for Jesus. They started well, but some of them were losing their way. And some of them had lost sight of what was most important. And Jesus gives these letters to them to invite these churches back into a path of faithfulness. And he basically gives each church a performance review. He and often he'll compliment them, and then he'll give them a criticism, and then he comes back with a compliment, the compliment sandwich, you know? And that's how if you're a man if you work in management, you know that's how you gotta give, you gotta give a performance review. This is what you're doing well. This is where you're struggling. This is how you can get back on track. And this is essentially what Jesus does to these churches. And his warnings are a lot like the YouTube video that my friend sent me. See, Jesus' desire for his church is not for Christians to be flashy and to rack up Instagram likes. But his desire for his churches that call on his name is that they would be faithful to him. And today he writes to the Christians in this ancient church of Ephesus. And Ephesus is a lot like New York. It was a trade city. It was the hub of influence, of cultural influence in Asia Minor at the time. And he essentially, this is what Jesus says to this church in Ephesus. He says, look, the stuff that everybody else sees, the stuff that everybody measures you by, you're doing great. You're a big church. You got impressive pastors. You're doing all the right things. But you've abandoned the very thing that I want from you. You started out strong. Jesus says to them, but somewhere and you're still doing all the right things, but somewhere along the way you've drifted. And you look the part, but your heart has shifted over time, and you've lost the joy of knowing Christ and 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 worshipping Christ, and now you're just doing Christian things untethered to the joy of knowing Jesus. You've left your first love, he tells them. And if you're here this morning, and you feel like maybe your faith has drifted. And you feel like, you know, I've been coming to church, I've been doing all the things, and, you know, I listen to podcasts and I listen to worship music, and, you know, I, I've been, you know, working hard, doing all the right things. But you still are like, man, but I just feel like I'm in a dry season. Or you go, I just feel like I'm drifting spiritually, or my, I'm compromising in areas, or my faith has become superficial. And you, if that's you and you're longing for your faith to be vibrant again, these letters are for you, and this letter today is for you. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're skeptical of the church, and, or, or Christianity, or Christians. Or perhaps maybe here you are a Christian, but you've been hurt by the church, or you've been hurt by a church, or you've been hurt by other Christians. I think these letters will be of great interest to you. Because what you'll see, you'll actually get to see what Jesus has, has to say to churches and Christians who fail to live up to the standards at which he has called them to. And what you'll find is if, you're, if you've had enough with the church, if you've been burned by the church, or there's, you don't like hypocrisy within the church, here's what you're going to find out. Jesus doesn't like those things either. But what you also will find out is that Jesus hasn't given up on the church. And that Jesus still loves his church as imperfect as we are. He does not give up on us and he calls us, even in our hypocrisy, he calls us to renew ourselves and, and follow him in faithfulness. And so I'll begin by just saying the revelation the book of Revelation written by a guy named John. And John, at the time that he wrote this book, he was exiled for preaching the gospel. They, you know, his punishment was they had exiled him to an island where he was all by himself, solitary confinement for, I mean, and he's on the island of Patmos. And while he is there, God gives him a vision into the throne room of heaven. And I mean, John sees heaven. And while he's there, he sees Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Hey, write this down. And so, these letters, when you open your Bible and you read the book of Revelation, it's physically written by John, but he is relaying a message that was given to him by Jesus. So, these are the words of Jesus. So, let's start. Chapter 2, Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you've ever read Revelation, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism, full of imagery, and it can be confusing at times. And a lot of people just there's some wrong interpretations or some wacky interpretations of the book of Revelation because sometimes we just don't do well with symbolism. But what this essentially means, this, or this idea of the, these seven golden lampstands and the one who walks among them, it's, he's, John's talking about Jesus. And Jesus is walking among these lampstands and these lampstands represent these seven churches in Asia Minor. And the image is that there's these lampstands all over this room and Jesus is just pacing among them, watching them. And the imagery is that Jesus is watching his churches. He's watching his people. So this imagery is that Jesus is just, he's watching and he's surveying our lives. And he's surveying the lives of these Christians in Ephesus. And listen to what he says to them. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not. And you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. They're doing great so far. Verse four, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Listen to this. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God." So let's start with the, the thing the commendations or the, the, the compliments that Jesus gives this church. Um, he, he says, here's what you're doing great at. Here's the areas where I see you doing well. He says, you're hardworking and you've persevered. You've been faithful to teach sound doctrine. And you have maintained moral integrity. And Jesus commends them for these things. He says, great job. Keep it up. These are the traits that you and I ought to be striving for in our lives. Hard work, perseverance, doctrinal fidelity, moral integrity. That is, those are the marks of a Christian. We ought to be striving for those things. And this church in Ephesus was doing all of them, and Jesus says, way to go. I mean, so let's look at hard work and perseverance. Verse two, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Verse three, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus says, you guys, you work hard. He said, you guys are striving to make an impact and you have not given up. This church at this point in time has been around for about 40 years. He's like, you guys have been, you have persevered for 40 years now. You haven't been lazy. Way to go. You know, a couple years ago when our church was going through some transitions, we actually had a consultant come in and just observe our church. And he gave a report and he said, you know, here are the things that you've done. you, You guys are doing well at and the thing he said that we, he's like, the thing that you guys have is grit. He said, th- he said this church has weathered some storms in the past. He said, but you guys have remained, like you guys work hard. You guys have grit. And that is what's helped this church remain vibrant over these years. And I think if Jesus would look at our church, he would agree. And he would say, man, like, so, I think he would look at us and he would say, look out to many of you and say, I see you. I know your works. I see that you're not lazy. I see your toil. And that word toil, I mean, that is a strong word. It's like labor to the point of exhaustion. I can see Jesus looking out at our church and saying, look, those of you who are laboring in Crossroads Kids and those of you who are laboring serving our students, he's like, I see you. You're working hard and I honor you for what you're doing. There are about 20 volunteers in this other wing of our building right now that are faithfully serving our kids. And I think Jesus looks at them and he's like, way to go. That's awesome. I see your hard work. I think Jesus would see the men who show up early on Sunday mornings and they unload a van and they turn this high school auditorium into a place of worship. I think Jesus looks at these men and says, well done, way to go. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for not sleeping in on Sundays. And as Kyle always says, thank you for picking things up and putting things down in Jesus' name so that we can have a place to worship. I think Jesus look at our First Impressions team and, and look at the people who arrive early and miss the first three songs because they're outside the building greeting people who come. And saying hello. And here's the thing Crossroads does a lot of things. You know, there are a lot of things we may not do well, but I'll tell you what you've never come, you've never walked into this church and not been greeted with a smile and been greeted with a genuine expression of gratitude that you're here. Our first impressions team, Jesus looks at you and he says, Way to go. Our growth group leaders who open your homes every week. But Jesus looks out and he sees our growth group leaders and he's like, You guys open your home every week. You spend hours studying the scriptures for the sake of your group. I see you. Way to go. Those of you who show up Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. to pray for God to move in our church and move in our city. Jesus says, I see you. Way to go. I see your hard work. And then those of you who are just faithful at loving your neighbors, not like sanctioned crossroads events, but you're just out there loving your neighbors and speaking blessing into their lives. Jesus is saying, I see you. Way to go. And this church in Ephesus, they were a hard-working church. I think we're a hard-working church too. They labored and they toiled and Jesus said, way to go. And what you've got to understand is just how impressive this is for this church in Ephesus. I mean, to be a Christian in Ephesus, that was not easy. Ephesus was a place of great spiritual darkness and great persecution. There are accounts of Christians in Ephesus in the first century being dipped in tar and set on fire and burned alive like tiki torches. Ephesus was a city that was engulfed. You can read this in Acts chapter 19 when you see Paul go and preach the gospel in Ephesus for the first time. Um, I mean, this is a city that was engulfed with the dark arts, like magic and witchcraft and the occult. Paul comes in, preaches the gospel. All these people are converted. They get saved. And what do they do? They burn their magic books and they burn their occult things and all this stuff. And the whole economy of Ephesus was built around selling this junk. And so the economy tanks, and everybody's mad at the Christians. They're like, "Why did you convert? and why are you burning all this stuff? Why aren't you buying this, this junk from us?" And it ruined the economy, and so they were upset. And so they began in, in, experiencing intense persecution. They were ostracized where they couldn't get jobs, they couldn't get you know, loans or whatever. I mean they, were just, they, they couldn't get ahead in life, because they were ostracized. They were iced their community as Christians. they were isolated. but they stayed the course. And they continue to strive as a church. And Jesus commends them for this. He says, way to go. You've worked hard and you've persevered in the midst of struggle. And listen, I hope that 40 years from now, Jesus will say the same of me and you. I hope that I I pray to God that I finish the race well. And I pray to God that this church finishes the race well. And the reason I pray so fervently for that is because I know how hard it is to stay the course sometimes. To live in a city like ours, where our faith is misunderstood by many and hated by some. It is so easy to compromise sometimes. But Ephesus, these Christians, they stayed the course and they are a model for us. And I want to be like them in this regard. He says, you're hardworking and you persevere. Way to go. He also says, you've you've demonstrated doctrinal fidelity. And doctrine just means right belief, like what you believe. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, you have stayed true to the scriptures. You've stayed true to what I taught you. He says in verse 2, I know your works um, and your, or your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear or how you cannot tolerate those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I mean, Jesus is saying there have been false teachers that have come into your church and they've tried to stir up trouble and they've tried to, they've tried to, you know, they've tried to teach things that weren't true, but you have shut them down and you have stayed true to what I've taught. You haven't been tossed about by every new philosophy and every new wind of what's popular and trendy. You have stayed the course and remained faithful. You know, when I think of the church of Ephesus, if you study their history, it's a pretty impressive church. It was started by the Apostle Paul. Their first pastor was the Apostle Paul. And then when he left Ephesus to go to another city, his parting words to them and I think Acts chapter 20, he says, be on guard for false teachers. There'll be false teachers who will try to twist the scriptures. They'll try to manipulate you for financial gain, for influence and for power. We see this today, don't we? False teachers who come into churches and they, they, they hijack the message of the gospel from the church and they make it about themselves and they turn the church into a profit in, uh, creating mechanism for themselves. And there was the same thing in Paul's day. And people would, they would try to manipulate the people of God to get things that they wanted. And, and Paul says, don't be seduced by false teaching. Remain true to the scriptures. And Jesus in Revelation 2 says they did. I want you to think of the pastors and the leaders that this church had in their history. Paul was their first pastor. They had Priscilla and Aquila who were leaders in their church in the early days. Timothy, when Paul left, Timothy became the pastor. Then we think Apollos at least preached there at some point. And then it's likely that John pastored there at some point. I mean, you've got two apostles. And then you've got Timothy and Apollos who were mentored by Paul. And then you've got Priscilla and Aquila who are lifted up as like this incredible um, uh, man, man and woman in the faith that led well. I mean, and some scholars even think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have lived at Ephesus at a time during the first century and would have been a part of this church. This church knew what Jesus taught. And they stayed faithful to it. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers writing early in church history, said of the Ephesian Christians. All of them live in accordance with the truth. There is no heresy found among them. They do not so much as even listen to someone unless they speak truthfully about Jesus Christ. And Jesus commends them for staying faithful to the scriptures. They had near perfect theology and they stayed true to it. And I hope this is true of our church. I mean, one of our values is that we want to know Christ through the Scriptures. We're committed to teaching the Scriptures here. We're committed to having growth groups that teach the Scriptures. We have growth group leaders here that spend hours preparing for Bible studies every week because we want to remain faithful to the words of God. Not to every philosophy and every sort of trend that comes into our city and out of our city. We are here to remain true to what Jesus taught and I pray that we'll remain that. We want to pray. We want to be faithful to the scriptures, even when it's difficult and even when it's unpopular, because there will be and there are temptations from every side for us to compromise what we believe. And I pray that we would remain faithful to what is true, just like this church in Ephesus did. Not only were they doctrinally faithful, Paul, or Jesus says that they, were, they had moral integrity. This is, this is interesting. In verse 6, he says, And after he warns them and criticizes them, he comes back and gives them another compliment. He's like, you got this one thing that I love. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Not the Nickelodeons, the Nicolaitans. And we're not really sure all the details of who the Nicolaitans were. They're going to come up again in our study. But what most scholars agree on is they were another church of some sort around Ephesus. And they claimed to be people of God. They claimed perhaps to be Christians, but they participated in the immorality of the rest of the city. So they claimed to be followers of God, but they looked no different from the rest of the world. And Ephesus was a city of rampant immorality. Temple prostitution, they, I mean, orgies, all that stuff. And the Nicolaitans claimed to be people of God, but they participated in this immorality. They participated in the temple prostitution. And the Ephesians, in the midst of all this, they never bowed their knees to that. And they were committed to holiness. And not only did they remain pure, but they, I mean, it says, Jesus commends them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, well done, you have not been seduced by the immorality of the city. And listen, we all know how hard this is in our city, don't we? I mean, we live in a city, and as much as we love this place, and I love it, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than this city. I love this city. It's where I, I enjoy raising my kids here. I love this place. But this place has its share of immorality and temptation, doesn't it? Unlike anywhere else in the country, I'm convinced. There is temptation everywhere. And in a city of eight and a half million people, you can go and be completely anonymous, and you can do whatever your wicked heart can dream of. And you'll be celebrated for it, and people will applaud you in it. And so there is temptation on every side for us to compromise and for us to give in to temptation. And I just know it's hard to remain faithful to the way of Jesus in New York. It is. And most of us in this room, you know the temptation to compromise. And many of us have failed at times. And we have to keep going back to Jesus, the one who restores and forgives. But these Christians in Ephesus, they lived at a time that was equally as difficult, but they didn't give in to temptation. And Jesus says, I see you. Way to go. Hard work, perseverance, doctrinal fidelity, and you have remained morally faithful. You've pursued holiness, even when holiness is difficult. And when I read Jesus speak to this church, I'm like, well, what could be wrong with him? Because this sounds like the church I want to be the pastor of. Like, I want a church that is, perseveres. I want a church that remains true to the scriptures. And I want a church that pursues holiness. This is what I want for us. And Jesus isn't telling us not to pursue these things. He says, great job. Keep doing these things. But I have this against you. And you're like, if you're a Christian in Ephesus, and this, church, this, this letter would have been read out loud in a service. And they're probably like celebrating, they're probably getting a little arrogant, you know, like, you're awesome at church in Ephesus, you're amazing, and they're probably thinking like, yeah, we are amazing, we figured this out, we're much better than all these other churches, and then Jesus says, but I've got this one thing against you, and they're like, oh, only one thing, nice, well, what is it, you know, is our music too loud, or, you know, what is it, what could we be doing wrong? He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Some translations say you have left your first love. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And listen, if not, this is the strongest warning in all, of all the letters. This is the strongest warning. He says, he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What he says is I'll shut your church down if you don't repent. Jesus says, you do all the right things, that's good. But something in your heart has shifted. The love for Jesus that you once had, you've walked away from it. And if you don't return, I'll shut this church down. And most of us know this, right? But it is very dangerous. It can be very toxic. Some of the most toxic churches on the planet are the ones that do the right things and believe the right things but they don't have love. Some of the most toxic churches are do and say all the right things but love is missing from their hearts. 1 Corinthians Paul says, if I speak in tongues of angels but I do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And Jesus says, if you he says you're doing all the right things, church, and I commend you for that, but your motivation has changed. You're no longer in love with Jesus the way you were when you started. And he says, if you don't return to me, I will remove your lampstand. And I I hear that and I think of denominations these days and churches these days like everybody's panicking. Like, oh, like the, the church is losing influence. The church is losing members, which is actually not true. That's only true in the United States and in the West. In the rest of the world, the church is growing. There's more Christians alive right now today on this planet than there ever have been in the other 2,000 years of history combined. That's true. The church in Asia, blowing up right now. Church in South America, exploding right now. Church in Africa, blowing up right now. And so when we say things like, the church is in decline, that is you just being a Westerner who's so focused on what God is doing in your little thing, you're not paying attention to what God's doing in the world. So God is moving. But there's all this talk about the decline of the church in America. And we're working so hard and striving so hard to keep our churches going and keep our churches afloat and get people to come. And I'm going, what if we are trying to save something that Jesus is trying to put out? I mean, maybe maybe what we need is not more technique and better songs and more charismatic speakers and... Facilities and new uh, you know, uh, methods for reaching people. Maybe what we need is to return to our first love. Maybe the fact that the church is declining in America doesn't have anything to do with the fact that, we've, you know, that we're not doing church right. It might have to do with the fact that we've abandoned the love we had at first. And Jesus says, if you don't return, I'll put out the lampstand. And I'll just say this before I go, because I'm, I'm referencing both church and individuals. Listen, Jesus is not going to put out your lampstand. Jesus has promised to remain faithful to you. If you confess Christ, there is no sin, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, there is no sin that can remove you from the love of Jesus. Jesus has promised that He will remain what He began in you, He will complete. But Jesus never made that promise to a local church. Jesus said if a local church abandons what they're teaching, uh, abandons Jesus, I'll shut the church out and I'll start a new one somewhere else with people who love love me. But I do want to ask this morning, is this you? Your beliefs maybe haven't changed in the last few years. Your morality hasn't changed. Maybe you still live a moral life. You do all the things a church person is supposed to do. You serve in the church. You post Bible verses on social media. You do all the right things, right? But I wonder if some of you in this room, have you left your first love? Do you feel like you're going through the motions and doing all the right things, but do you feel in your heart like you've drifted from God? And do you feel like a dryness in your soul? Have you lost the power that you once had? Jesus says you can repent and you can return to me. In recent years, I've started started to see my college and high school friends getting divorced. I'm at that season of life where you're starting to see that happen. And it just breaks my heart because I'm like, "I I was at your wedding. And you, there's no... It wasn't like the love was, like it was real love. Like you loved each other. And then I watched them over the years. I watched their social media. They had kids. They went on vacation together. They slept in the same bed. They bought a house. They did all the things that a married couple is supposed to do. And I'm like, but what happened? Maybe perhaps they did all the things that married couples are supposed to do, but they didn't cultivate their love for one another. And everybody in this room who's been married for longer than, I don't know, a week. <laughs> you know that if you don't cultivate the love, you can drift into just being good roommates or maybe bad roommates. You've got to cultivate the intimacy. You've got to cultivate the love. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer said uh, at a wedding of, uh, to someone, he said, up to this point... Love has... Uh, oh, I'm going to botch the quote. I'm not even going to try it. It's not in my notes. I'm trying to be on the fly. I see these married couples. They, did all, they may have done all the right things on the outside, but if you don't cultivate love and intimacy, that love will disappear. It will atrophy. And the same is true of our relationship to Jesus. Many of you, you can look back to that time when you were converted, and you're like, man... I was on fire. I had so much joy and excitement for Jesus. And I was just so grateful that he had forgiven me. And that I could be a part of a congregation of people that loved me and that loved Jesus. And like every time I just heard a song when I had just been converted, it just like brought me to tears. And I loved Jesus so much. But then over the years, you've done all the right things, you've gone to church, you serve, you studied the Bible, you've tried to be obedient to the commands of Jesus, but then you've woken up and it's a few years later and you're like, yeah, but that spark has been gone missing in my heart. And your faith now feels stale. And if that's you, you might be asking, how do I return back to the love I had at first? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, remember, repent. And do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and return. Jesus says, Remember, therefore, where, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at, at first. Listen, I just want to get a little real with you guys. I confess, just to be honest with you, just in the last few months, and really, I mean, just I feel adrift in my heart sometimes. And you know, I'm a pastor, so like my doctrine has to be good, or else I get fired. My, moral and my morality has to be intact or else I'd get fired. And I've got to persevere or else I gotta find, I'd quit and find another job. Like, I do these things. I can drift in my heart and lose, like, the intimacy with Jesus. And I was out of town last week and I was spending some time in my old college town. And I believe that was by God's, by His faithfulness, and I'll explain that to you. I preached at a friend of mine's church there. And I spent a few days in my old college town, Auburn University. And I was preparing the message while I was in Auburn. And I was telling God, I was like, I feel so inadequate to preach this message because, man, sometimes I just feel like my own heart is drifting. I feel like I do all the right things, but there's an intimacy that I used to have that just feels like it's not there like it used to be. And I felt like the spirit was speaking to me and he was like, when did you feel that spark at its most, at its like, the, when was it the hottest? And I was like, "Man, it was, it was when I was in college. And it, because it was when I was in college where God really got a hold of my life. It was in college where my love for Jesus grew. It was in college where I turned away from many of the things I did in my life. And they were exciting times. I, was, I had Christian friends, just godly, godly friends. I had a great pastor. And I think it is in God's kindness that I was in my college town as I studied this passage because what does he say? He says, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Well, what were the works I did at first when God got a hold of my heart? I was in Auburn. (laughs) I got to go to the very places... Where I, the parks, where I would sit down with a picnic blanket and study the scriptures, and I did that. I got to have lunch with the very pastor who helped revive my faith. My friends that I went to college with were in town. I called them up. I said, let's have lunch. And we're talking about what Jesus did in our lives 12 years ago. And it just stirred, it brought it all back to me. And I was like, man, I'm so thankful for this place in this little tiny corner of the earth, Auburn University, where God took me from one way of life and put me into his kingdom of light. And I'm like, man, just, I'm so grateful for that time. And while I was there, it all came flooding back to me. And I felt like the fire's coming back. And I feel like I've come back rejuvenated and restored to come and preach this message. You know, most marriage counselors, We'll say to struggling couples, they'll say, what made you fall in love with each other? Give the list, date night or whatever. And marriage counselors will say, well, go do those things. Was it dates? Was it little love notes that you wrote to each other? Go do those things. I don't feel like it. Do them anyway. And counselors, psychiatrists will say that often your, your heart will follow your actions. And so you go on a date with your wife if your marriage is struggling. You write a letter to her if you're struggling. I mean, couples, if you're struggling, be intimate with one another. I don't feel like it. It will spark something. Go back to the things you did at first. And Jesus says the same thing is true spiritually. And so if you're drifted today and you feel dry, I want you to think in your mind. Go, when was, when was my life when was my heart warmed with affections for Jesus? And go back to that place and do those things. Remember where you started. Repent. And everybody gets, panics over this word. Because it's been hijacked by legalistic preachers in Union Square. Right? I mean, we, we, repent sounds like this terrible word. But I think repent is one of the most misused words in our language. It's one of the most beautiful words in all the Bible because you know what repent means? It means you can always turn around and you can always go back and Jesus is always waiting. Repent. He's always standing there ready to welcome you back. God will always forgive. God will always welcome you back. Jesus says, repent. Are you drifting? Have you lost your first love? Remember what you did at first. Repent and then go do those things. And that's what Jesus tells this church in Ephesus. He says, go back to where it all started. I'm glad you've worked hard. I'm glad you've persevered. I'm glad you've stayed faithful to the Scriptures. Keep doing those things, but don't do them with a cold heart. Restore your love for Jesus. Now we're about to move into a time of communion. And we're going to take the body and the blood of Christ. And this is a meal for all Christians. Jesus said the night before He was betrayed, He said, every time you take this, do this in remembrance of Me. And I think Jesus gave us, he gave us the body and the blood, the bread and the wine to help us spark our love for him. It's an exercise in remembering what he has done for us. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to worship and you're going to come forward and you're going to take the the body of Christ. You're going to take the bread and you're going to take the cup. And before you take it, I want you to just close your eyes and I want you to pray to Jesus. And I want you to remember all the way back to that day on Calvary where Jesus put your sin on the cross with him. Colossians 1 says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He took your sin. He nailed it to the cross. They put his body in a tomb and then he rose again from the dead and says that all who believe in me can have new life new life apart from their sin, new life in part with who Jesus is. And you remember that, the bread and the cup, and you take that and you go, Jesus died for me and he rose so that I could have life. And then you, I want you to think about the first time you heard that or the first time that that ever made sense in your heart and you go, man, Jesus, I remember that time when my heart just was stirred with gratitude for what you've done. And go back to that place in your heart today. And repent and return to that moment, that time. And do those things that you did that stir your affections for Jesus. Let's pray.